Why, hello there, and thank you for tapping into this episode of Bandwidth Coast to Coast. For this one, as are many that are getting released in this next batch, it was recorded several months ago. Nearly eight months to be exact. A pause I do apologize for. So if you would, forgive a few dated portions of the conversation, such as the Delta variant just getting ramped up in the UK. But, other than that bit of ancient history, the remainder of this interview is quite timeless. That is, until we stop using Python as a programming language. For this installment, I asked the previous guest to come back on to talk more about the tools he uses, and the ways he uses them. Being a bit of a developer myself, I got my interest piqued last we spoke about how he uses Python, one of the simplest and most ubiquitous programming languages in use today. So I asked him to come back on and talk with me in more detail about the technologies he uses, the various libraries they're in, and how to get someone who's interested in this to get going. There are parts in this episode that get a bit technical, and even with that fair warning, I encourage the less technical of my listeners out there to try to give it a go. If, for nothing else, to understand better the technologies that, like it or not, are quickly becoming commonplace. And to give those a bit of a background, the majority of machine learning and AI programming is done with Python, using some of the very libraries or packages of code that Dr. Baltzer is talking about in our chat. Through this step-by-step walkthrough of how Dr. Baltzer does his work, you'll get a front row seat to some really amazing things that are being done, some to better understand climate change's effects and others to see what steps are being taken using computer analysis to spot an area that is trending towards drought, leveraging satellite data to help farmers with their crop insurance, or even just to get a look at what the effects climate change is having on our planet. Along with some very illuminating prospects for now and the future on what can be done with the satellite image data. And, well, if this technical portion proves to be maddening, skip past it a bit, because Dr. Baltzer brings me out of the technical forest and ends the chat talking about some of the most beautiful areas to view from the heavens above. He even goes into where he enjoys watching the weather, with some great stories along the way. To those of you who may be listening to this that are developers, getting started, or currently bashing your head against a wall trying to solve a problem, I have a bit of wisdom to transform to you from Dr. Baltzer. It's not how good you are in comparison to others in programming, but how disciplined and diligent you are in chasing your ideas. For even the self-admitted not-that-great-of-a-programmer can win a Copernicus Award for their code. A truth that extends far beyond just the zeros and ones. Well, with that and no further ado, my interview with Director of the Center for Landscape and Climate Research at the University of Leicester, Dr. Heiko Baltzer. As always, I hope you enjoy. Real quick, before the episode begins, if you'd like to know about episode drops, check out our episode catalog, find ways to get us on different streaming platforms, or leave us a comment. Please reach out to us at bandwidthpodcast.com. All 
All right, Dr. Baltzer, thank you again uh, for your time. I'm really excited to talk with you, uh, as I was just saying. Uh, but um, so last time you were on, it was your first time. Um, and I asked you as a question to get started, what you like to do, what that makes you happy. So I'm going to switch it a little bit and ask you what you've done this week that made you happy. This week, I've been out a lot for walks in the neighborhood. Uh, there's not much one can do these days outside uh, with all the lockdown restrictions, but I thoroughly enjoy having an early morning walk before I start work and get some fresh air. And often my wife joins me for that. So that's also quite nice. I like that. Yeah, I, I make that a, a ritual every morning, actually, uh, usually before I have my coffee. But uh, I, I really enjoy the morning walks and kind of starting your day doing that. So I appreciate that. Mm -hmm. We had one particular morning that was particularly nice, which was everything was covered in snow and the sun was out and we had a blue sky. That's gorgeous. I, I love the look of a, a fresh coat of snow. It makes everything mm -hmm. seem a little more... Uh, uh, what would be the right word for this? Uh, like mystical or, you know, like uh, awe-inspiring. Like um, I, I'm searching for a word that's similar to like uh, cartoonish, you know what I mean? Where it's like, it's, it looks surreal. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Uh, it doesn't snow very often by you, does it? Not very often. This was the first time we had some serious snow this winter. That's interesting. Is, are the snow patterns changing? Are you getting more snow or less snow than typically? It's hard to say. I've only lived in this area for about mm. 13 years or so. So, you know, it's not quite long enough to, to say what the experience is in relation to the long-term climate. But my feeling is we've not had very much snow in the last couple of years. When we moved here first, you know, there was much more snow in the winter, sometimes extended periods of snow for several months. That hasn't happened so much in the last five or six years. Yeah, that's, that's what I was wondering. Um, it's interesting. I... Uh... I've, I'm quite interested in economics. Um, and one of the reasons I'm quite interested in it is because I find it as a bit of a hack to find out a lot of other things. Um, mm -hmm. It's like a shortcut. And uh, one of the ones that was a shortcut was talking about um, private investment in the wine industry um, and how in particular, there's been a lot of private equity that's going into uh, wines that are made in the UK. Because I, I suppose like... Um, I don't, they were saying like a time period, but historically uh, British wine or, you know, wine in that region of the, the islands um, was quite bitter, I suppose, because of the climate. Um, mm -hmm. But since it's been changing, it's been a lot sweeter. Uh, and I guess like, you know, if you're projecting the climactic models out, uh, the wine that's actually grown in uh, the UK is going to be quite delicious, which was really surprising, you know, because usually you just hear doom and gloom, which I guess this is, you know, a, a proxy for it, but uh, an adjacent thing I never would have considered. <laughs> Yes, not far from where I live, actually, there is a local vineyard um, and there are some really nice English wines, actually. They're not widely known. I don't think they produce a lot, but we had a green week in the university some years ago to promote sustainable nutrition and all of this, sustainable food supplies, low carbon ways of living and so on. And as part of this, they had a wine reception at the end with local wines from the region, which I found quite surprising. So some of those were really tasty, actually. There are some good wines. Yeah, that's what this was saying too. And it, it made me really want to seek it out. So I might ask you what that vineyard is just to try it out of my own curiosity. Um, yeah, the, the, the shifting like climate and what that means for the agriculture and things like that, it's been, it's been quite interesting to read into. Uh, I, I have a, I'm drinking coffee right now. I, have a, I don't drink much things. I don't really drink alcohol, but I, I do love coffee. Um, so seeing how that is shifting too is also quite interesting. 
uh, like where I used to live in San Diego, um, I just moved recently. Um, the, the water demand on a lot of the crops there, there is shifting what they're growing. So they're growing a lot less uh, avocados and things like that because the water strain is so much. But if they're actually finding that coffee is taking quite well to that type of climate, um, which is interesting because I, I was talking to a farmer who was telling me this and he was saying that, you know, 10 years ago, you never would have thought <laughs> that there'd be a coffee kind of like, you know, surging there. It's quite interesting. Mm -hmm. um, I wanted to ask you, you know, as we're kind of poking around getting started here, um, what you're working on as far as research these days. I know before uh, and most typically it's forests and kind of green cover, but I was just curious to see what uh, your focus has been most of recent. Yeah, more recently, I've started working on a project to do with the monitoring of deforestation-free supply chains. Um, we are involved in a big project now, which is led by the satellite applications Catapult in the UK. That is an organization that facilitates innovation with universities and private businesses. And as part of that, we are transferring some of our research methods out of the university into commercial applications that can hopefully help monitor the supply of goods um, and the imports of goods and making sure that they come from areas where they don't cause any additional deforestation. So that's an exciting project and we are working with um, importers, we are working with uh, companies buying goods that are coming in and they want to know actually which is the area where they're being produced and how is the forest cover in that area changed in the last couple of years? Is there an effect on the local forest cover from the production? Wow, that is awesome. And also something that I haven't heard much about. So that is really, really uh, heartwarming, honestly, that that they're taking such an active interest in making sure that the, you know, uh, the the goods are being produced in a sustainable manner in some way. That's really awesome. Um, what, um, how, how do you monitor that? Like, how are you tracking that down? Because I'm, I'm assuming you're you're going from like where the base of production is and then kind of where they're harvesting resources and, and, and using extrapolating from a historicals and then uh, seeing what that's been like in the, the more recent or I'm poking around. Is mm -hmm. that, is that fair? Or? That's fair to say. Yeah. So in the context of the international policy for reducing deforestation, which is called red plus um, REDD, and that stands for reducing greenhouse gas emissions from deforestation and forest degradation. Um, under that policy, basically countries that participate in that scheme, have to create what is called a forest reference emission level. And that is the historic amount of deforestation that has happened in the country. Um, and then based on that, one can then compare the current deforestation rates against historic rates and see whether the deforestation is getting less or getting worse. So how this applies to the supply chain monitoring is that usually importers and growers know the areas where they source material from. Um, let's say we talk about coffee or cocoa or something like this. Um, and they can basically zoom into those areas from space and have a satellite point at that area and create regular maps of the forest cover and where the plantations are to see how they are changing and to see whether the farmers are cutting down some trees to expand their plantation areas. That's in a nutshell how we do it. And incidentally, this morning I was part of a meeting, a virtual meeting, of course, with um, the Forestry Commission in Ghana, which was held in their offices in Accra. Um, they were launching a national map of forest cover and land cover for Ghana that we helped produce, which contains um, information on the cocoa plantation extent, um, where we had done some work as part of a UK space agency funded project, which is called Forest 2020. 
So we have worked together with the Ghana Forestry Commission on that. Um, and the intention in Ghana is very much to use that kind of information for monitoring supply chains and commodities. So they are working on a national certification scheme for deforestation-free exports. That is awesome. Uh, wow, way to go, Ghana. Uh, what, uh, what, are they, what is the exports, the chief exports uh, in that region? that country well they are exporting cocoa a lot of cocoa they are exporting timber but also shea butter you know the body butter you may know um, and a couple of other products um, coffee they export and i think tea i'm not an expert in the economy of ghana i have to say but uh, cocoa was the commodity we were focusing on in this project particularly because that was one of the uncertainties in their current data that's great the thing That's is sometimes with the cocoa plantations, you have lots of small farmers growing cocoa. So there is no central database of some big plantation companies, right. but um, a mosaic of very small farms that are scattered all over the country. And as you can imagine, they can change very rapidly without anyone knowing. Yeah, definitely. But in this, so um, this is just an aside. You don't, you know, if you feel free not to comment on this, but you know, one of the concerns I have with, um, the way that economies are going, and especially under COVID, um, it's it's further centralization of capital, further uh, lar uh, growing of larger companies um, being kind of the means of what's kind of steadying through this. And then I have a concern of what that if that's going to be a growing trend. Um, so hearing this in such an initiative to, you know, um, I mean, it, it seems like such a novel solution of we have all these decentralized farmers instead of trying to create some type of centralized network to keep everything in check, actually going from above and monitoring it and then giving certifications at that type of level. Um, seems like a really awesome novel solution to support that type of small infrastructure, which, you know, I, I mean, this I don't think this is an ideological statement. Um, perhaps it is in some level, but I think it's better to keep things decentralized at, at smaller levels, which. I know we talked about before, like my, my little uh, shtick of the opposite of globalization is atomization. Um, but this, this is an awesome example because it keeps wealth in this decentralized manner. Um, it probably stays the, those individual farmers' livelihoods better. And then, you know, being able to certify them seems like a really awesome novel solution that I, I haven't heard much of things like this. So this is really awesome for me to, to be aware of this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess it's a case of watching that space, you know, when the uh, project I'm involved in now produces some results, um, then there will be more coming out on this front. And the, the name of the project is Forest Mind. Um, so we are trying to create machine learning based methods that can also help identifying any changes early. Um, and we have lined up a couple of companies and stakeholders who are interested in this kind of information. Um, so we're hoping we can serve the information needs from space. Yeah, that's that's also a really cool thing to say. <laughs> Serve their information needs <laughs> from space. That's yeah, awesome. There's no other way. Well, there are a few other ways of doing it, and I think you could use airborne remote sensing, of course, but that is very expensive. You have to fly planes ever so often over the area, and you know the costs of that actually is much higher than using free satellite data that are provided by the space agencies. Yeah, I, that makes sense to me. The only other thing would be like drones or balloons. And all of that would cause, you know, a lot more infrastructure that would be needed. And um, it, you, you would probably know this better. Or you would know this better than, than I. But I know that one of the big problems in working in Africa is having access to the knowledge economy. 
So like if, oh yeah, let's just go in and take a bunch of drone footage or, you know, take a bunch of weather balloons that have some type of, uh, you know, um, image data on them or something, image capabilities. Um, that's all well and good, but it's actually quite hard to do uh, given, you know, sometimes remote areas and getting out there or even just have access to the knowledge economy because, you know, a lot of people say they would like to go and work, you know, in remote areas and then you know, they see the pay and they're not going to do it, right? So. Mm. That is very much the case. I think um, universities and companies and so on are quite often concentrated in the capital. You know, in Ghana, Accra is one of the hubs where a lot of things are happening. Um, and there are other universities out in the countryside and in smaller towns and cities. Um, but Accra is clearly a center of the knowledge economy in Ghana. And uh, I've seen the same in other African countries like in Kenya, Nairobi is one of the buzzing centers of where investment and innovation happens, you know, and companies go there. Um, you pick universities are based there, the best universities in Kenya are based in Nairobi, and, and all of this is happening there. Partly it's, it's a bit like an effect like in London, where you have uh, government agencies, you have big companies, you have leading research universities and everything else quite close together. That forms quite a good ecosystem to work together. Yeah, yeah, and, and, it, and the, another analog would be Silicon Valley. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and, yeah. and, and, and at a certain point, um, it becomes self-perpetuating, right? Like you have, like in Silicon Valley, like that's a really good case study because you have all those universities that feed directly into the tech companies. And then, you know, the talent kind of either gets attracted to that or centralized in that and stays in there. Um, yes. And then it becomes, in my eye, it comes a little bit turbulent too, because you have all the same people kind of circulating and going throughout everything. So uh, getting new ideas or even breaking the mold of what's there, you know, tends to be a little more difficult. Um, so doing something like this, it's, it's almost like you're taking a dimension higher, quite literally, um, and getting from exactly. space. Yeah. And that's why in the University of Leicester this year, we are launching a space park. There is a new campus with a big building for about 300 people or so, half of which will be from industry and half of which will be from the university. Um, so we are co-locating all the space research and earth observation research from the university with some of the leading companies and innovation organizations, um, some of whom will probably move small groups of people there, others might have hot desks. So there are different models of engaging with the businesses, um, but some are renting space and some have more temporary presence. And we're hoping that will create a similar environment there in Leicester. Um, where innovation takes place naturally as part of the daily life and you don't have to go out to actively seek collaborations because they happen over coffee. That would be great. Well, once COVID is down and that's up, I'm going to come and drop in at some point. That sounds like a lot of yes. fun. However hard it seems to believe at the moment, I think we will get out of it at some point. <laughs> um, yeah. In the past, pan pandemics are over at some point. You know, sometimes after a while, life returns to a sort of no no near, near normal, you know, but it can take a long time. So yeah, being patient. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I took a, I took a couple hours. Uh, um, I don't, I've been moving. I had to like move suddenly from San Diego back to the Midwest. And um, I've been dealing with that. Bad. So time to me, uh, COVID plus having to move locations ge you know, geographically uh, across several thousand miles, my, my sense of time is completely off. Um, so mm. it might've been like, it might've been two weeks ago, but I'm saying it's two months ago. I think it was two months ago. Um, but I went back and I looked at the Spanish influenza um, and I went back and I actually was looking at some, uh, I think it was Tacitus, uh, some Roman writings of like plagues and things like that have gone out. And uh, my back in the napkin rounding is that a lot of times uh, epidemics last about 18 months before they kind of crescendo and go back down. And 
you know, eventually mm-hmm. kind of go back to normal. So um, I'm waiting for June. I'm going to, I'm going to wait till June. I'm going to just accept life until June and, and hope that there's a, a bit of a, a resolve to it after that point. Yes. I'm doing this thing and we have the vaccination program here now in full swing. So, you know, all going well, we might get the vaccine by the summer or shortly after the summer. And then eventually I think things will get a bit more normal. Yes. Yes. I, I think, I think so too. Uh, the, the world is changing fast and uh, mm-hmm. it seems like the, the COVID just sped a lot of the, the different things up. So um, I think at least that factor may be a little bit less in the equation, uh, which is going to be, which will be nice. It'll be nice to be able to, to see people and not have some type of sense of panic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, especially in the UK, I was thinking about you uh, a few months ago when I heard about the new uh, variant. Um, so I'm happy mm-hmm. to hear that you're healthy and well, and uh, it's, uh, it definitely seems like uh just everything is coming together at once so i'm happy that we're still able to talk over the wire yeah yeah um yeah i've been fortunate so far and i've I've not had it as far as i know you never quite know you know (laughs) but um i've not had any symptoms let's say um and i've not been tested because there was no reason for being tested Uh, but then i've been working from home for a long time now you know and i have very little contact with other people so the risk for me is quite low. I know not everybody can stay away from other people as much. You know, some people have to go to work and outside of their own house, and um, that can be a bit harder to manage the risk, perhaps, if you have to have contact with others. Right. We have now moved entirely to online teaching in the university as well. Um, so that's going to stay at least until mid-February, possibly longer. Um, and we all have to make the most of it, you know. So yeah. it's an adaptation for the students, it's an adaptation for us academics, but that's the way for now, you know, and we make the most of it. Yeah, it's, it's a good uh, example of how we're always going to be forced to adapt. So this is just the, the latest uh, thing to have to come over overcome. Um, yeah, which brings us on to computing, because actually I think in terms of um, Python and programming and all these things, Online teaching actually can work really well because you can do so much online. Um, And this is something I do in my master's module now in the uh, coming semester. Um, So we started last week actually, and my colleague Fernando has been teaching the first couple of weeks. Um, He basically started teaching entirely online in Google Colab, Hmm. Google Collaboratory, um, which we're using for all the students to access a similar computing environment. That is a big equalizer in a way because students quite often have different laptops or different personal computers at home. And one of the challenges of distance learning and online learning is sometimes that you cannot assume anything about the IT that a student has on their desk. So therefore you have to find a common denominator that all the students can use. And Google Colab is one such environment where you can log on to a virtual machine and you get a virtual desktop on your screen, but you're working on the Google computing infrastructure and you have a standardized operating system, a Linux operating system, where all the students have the same experience. Um, the computing resource you get depends on the time when you do it and how often you log in and all of this. So there's some complicated algorithm behind it, how it manages that. Um, <clears throat> but overall, it seems to work pretty well so far. And we've been using that successfully for our Python teaching last year. That's great. I, you know, one of the things that I've actually noticed when trying to get people into programming is just getting them set up in the right version of Python for what they're trying to do. 
uh, and understanding like, oh, there's different versions, you know, like there's Python 2, Python 3, 3.3 versus 3.7 mean different things, uh, especially if you're trying to, you know, usually the way to get into Python programming is by using some type of module that then kind of gets you to do something like requests is usually the one that I tell everyone to start with because it's like you can hit an open API and get some data back and you can kind of start seeing the fundamentals from it. Um, so giving it in that, I, I've used Google Code Lab when it was like in beta. I haven't used it in a while. Um, I didn't know they were giving you Linux machines and things like that. Um, so that has to be awesome, not only for easing people into it, because like you said, like not everyone is running the same machine um, and uh, kind of getting everyone at a base level. That's really awesome. That's, that's, uh, that's really encouraging to hear that the Google is providing that, let alone that it's going so well. Mm. And it's free at the point of view. So, you know, students can log in for free. It uh, maps onto your Google Drive. So you have some free storage as well to a limited extent. Um, if you exceed that, you can upgrade your storage, but then you have to pay personally. So we try to keep the amount of data we store to a minimum so that students don't have to pay personally for storing data. But on the other hand, you know, if they decided, for example, to become an entrepreneur and set up a company or develop a service out of the satellite data that they are analyzing after graduating, then it's a very small step to go from that free usage of Google Colab to a commercial application where you simply upscale and you say, well, rather than analyzing one small image, I'm going to analyze hundreds of big images and pay the fees for the computing, but charge a customer for the service. Yeah, that's great. And, and if you're learning Linux fundamentals from that, you could easily translate that into creating your own Linux box in which you can even just have it run on there, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, you could, yeah. And um, the advantage is also um, that um, there is some temporary space there. And on Google Colab, you have something like 40 gigabytes or so oh, that's great. Um, in terms of free storage space, but that is temporary and that ceases to exist when you log out and the virtual machine closes. Mm. Uh, so before you do that, you have to download your data onto your Google Drive. Uh, but that's not a big step um, that can be implemented very easily what that means is you have some temporary scratch drive, if you like, where you can store data in between for the different processing steps. Yeah, that's great. It's almost like a, it's like a big cache that you have for whichever, whatever session. It's like session cache, essentially, mm -hmm. right? Um, yeah. That's really great. Um, so yeah, like, there's a you... good integration also with IPython notebooks. Mm. <laughs> so we use Jupyter notebooks in the teaching, uh, partly because you can annotate them so nicely because you alternate between a block of code that you can run and a block of explanatory text below. So the students can click on run and that block of text is executed and then you see the output from that. And then you can read the next block of explanatory text that the lecturer can put in and then the student can move on. So you can break down a complex thing into small steps and explain what is happening in between. Yeah, that's great. Jupyter Notebooks is awesome. I was going to ask if you're using that. That's It's really great for exactly what you just described. Um, it's also really good for getting, there's uh, a lot of data. I'll, I'll put this in the show notes, but there's a lot of data science, um, like tutorials and kind of 101s and getting into it that are all in Jupyter Notebooks. And it's, mm. it's quite great. Um, also, another thing that's hard to get into is setting up and uh, getting Jupyter running on your machine, uh, particularly, if you, particularly if you have Macs. For some reason... My development machine is, is a Linux box um, that I built, mm -hmm. but uh, I personally for development, I don't think there's any, uh, I, I'm very biased. I'm not biased on many things like openly showing how uh, ideological I am, but uh, when it comes to Linux, I'm, I'm pretty hardcore with it. Um, mm -hmm. Particularly like pure OS. Are you familiar with pure OS at all? I'm not, no. 
it's like a security based um, one. So it's like right. very, very hard uh, security locks on it and things like that. It's, it's really, really great. Uh, Librem is the company that uh, mm-hmm. does it, but um, it, everything on Linux when it comes to developing just seems to be so much easier once you get it set up. Um, but Jupyter Notebooks is for some reason very finicky on Macs. So being mm-hmm. able to have that in this type of Google environment is awesome to hear. Um, yeah. When I started working with Python, I started working on the Windows operating system, but I found that really, really hard. Yeah. Just to install packages is sometimes really complicated and you have to fiddle with the Microsoft libraries and things like this and the registry, which I find really hard yes. um, to do yourself. You know, So in the end, I switched to Ubuntu, which is far easier. Oh yeah, Ubuntu is great. I, I like Fedora. So if, if I'm not using mm-hmm. PureOS, I'm using Fedora. I like Fedora a lot. I like the uh, that... Um, Red Hat kind of distribution. Plus, I personally, I have a much more bend towards open source just because there tends to be a lot more that you can kind of spin up really quickly. Um, and I, I like hacking things a lot. So like if I'm, uh, and by hacking, I mean like doing things there might not necessarily be a library for. So so I have mm-hmm. to kind of like stitch it together uh, to make it work, uh, particularly with like physical to, to digital divide. I'll do a lot of stuff with like Raspberry Pis and Arduinos. Um, mm-hmm. And like any Linux-based operating system is going to help you so much more get to that level. Because um, once again, like Macs make it a little bit easier because of the terminal kind of being baked in. It makes it makes it a little bit easier than on a, a PC. Um, but PCs, you have the issue of, well, what version of Windows are you in? Where do you move files around? You have to move a file into a certain directory to get it to work. So um, I don't blame yeah. you for switching to Ubuntu. No, so what I do normally is um, I have um, Oracle Virtual Machine installed on my Windows system. So I start that up and that creates a simulated Ubuntu machine mm-hmm. on your Windows box. And then you can work as if you were working on a Linux system. And that seems to work pretty well. Yeah, that does. That, those have gotten so much better over the years. Mm-hmm. Like those like virtual machines. It, when, I, when I first worked in another life, uh, I, when I was in college, I worked uh, like IT uh, server side support. So like for a company, I was like managing their servers and, um, all their machines and all that. And virtual machines then were not what they are now. Like we had servers that we had virtual machines that were like servers and that worked quite well. Um, but trying to build little environments like at people's desks of being able to go into like, like, like an Ubuntu or anything like that, uh, wasn't what it is now. It's, it's, it's so even like the VM, is it VM? Uh, you know, being able to like port in or create your own local virtual machine that you can then access from anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, like usually when I, my home is set up, um, I'm in between homes at the moment, but usually when my home is set up, I'll have a, uh, a Linux machine that's actually running connected to my hardwired internet that I can access from my phone, which sounds so, sounds so novel, but if for things like file storage or things like that, that aren't in a Google drive, cause maybe they're too, too heavy of a file or um, something that's quite outdated, like all of my stuff from you know, colleges in there and things like that. It's, it's quite nice. Um, mm-hmm. So learning those little bits of uh, how to's, you can just start extending out in all different types of directions. Yeah. So what, um, in your master's course, what are uh, some of the like learnings and modules that you all are working on when it comes to the satellite data? Yeah, so on the master's course, um, it's a master's course in um, satellite data um, science. Satellite Data Science is the title of the course. Um, The module I'm teaching on is the Satellite Data Analysis in Python. So this is specifically the Python programming module on the course. 
Um, some other modules are working with Earth observation data in general. So we have modules on the atmospheric and ocean monitoring side of Earth observation and on the land monitoring side. We're looking at global data for climate, for example, and we're looking at local mapping for urban areas or land cover and these kind of applications where you need landscape scale data. Um, and some other modules are co-taught by people in informatics. So we have one on machine learning, for example, hmm. um, and it's an interdisciplinary course where physics and informatics, geography, geology and environment are all getting together to deliver this course. Um, this year is the first time it's really running. Um, my module has been running last year as part of another uh, master's course in geographic information science that we have offered for a long time in Leicester. Um, and so this is the second time I'm delivering this. Um, uh, I'm still learning, um, you know, so <laughs> I have to basically uh, adjust my teaching also to the online and remote working environment. Um, and there, there is a limited student contact, of course, you know, it's, it's harder to work with students online in some ways because I cannot sit next to someone and I cannot actually look at the same screen and point at something with my finger. Uh, that seems like a trivial thing, but that is much harder to do if you're in an online classroom and everybody's connected from the home. So that is one thing I need to get sorted and um, we will see how that goes, um, but um, we want to actually make the most of it. And with this Google Colab environment that we're using, at least the students are all confident they have the same processing environment. So a Jupyter notebook that one student can run will run on the same Colab installation on a different machine, regardless of the operating system or anything else. That's the advantage. <clears throat> that makes it a lot easier. Oh yeah, definitely. I still the over the shoulder pointing and kind of, you know, like, oh, look, you just missed, uh, you put a comma there, or, you know, that's why that code isn't running. Uh, that, that'll be more difficult, but I have faith you'll figure it out. Um, it's it, it's a, a, almost a good challenge though, right? Because once you're able to break out of this and get it going once, um, whatever the future is going forward, you know, perhaps the, the reach of this program can actually be larger than just the, the, the physical geography you're in, if you will. Um, yes. So a quick question, and I'm going to kind of keep diving off of this, this bracket or fractal as if you will, um, mm -hmm. why Python? Why are you choosing Python? Yeah, I've, well, we've chosen Python because on the one hand, we have been talking to a lot of companies and employers, and they told us that they are really looking for Python programmers. So many companies in the space sector in the geoinformatics industry, and anyone dealing with geographic data, will tell you that now most people are using Python or many people are using Python programming. Um, it is integrated, for example, in geographic information system software now. Um, there are uh, GIS software packages, some of the leading packages, both freeware and commercial GIS um, packages that are using Python interfaces. So with Python, you can actually write your own procedures for those GIS software packages. Um, and partly, I think there is this culture of open innovation. Python programmers tend to share their code um, and companies see that as a plus. So there are different ways how companies work, but generally speaking, companies like having lots of different things out in public domain where they can get some inspiration out to do things. And I should say, <clears throat> I am coming at this um, as someone who is not a trained programmer in strict sense. I have been programming since I went to university a long time ago. Um, 
at the time I was using C and then C++ um, and then a bit of Fortran and BASIC and these kind of things. Um, long forgotten languages, I think, that nobody uses anymore. You'd be um, surprised, my clients. <laughs> <laughs> your clients use them, yes. There is a lot of legacy code out there, so that is one of the challenges. But I also think Python, now many students actually know Python from their school. So oh. we get a lot of students coming to university who have actually had some exposure to Python in school. Um, certainly my children, when they went to school, were being taught Python, hmm. very introductory Python at school. Um, you know, and they were working with um, the um, Raspberry Pi, for example, you know, the microcomputer. Um, UK and, born. Yeah, and doing some programming on there when they went to school. So that was an interesting experience. And so we thought actually, how is Python like? And I used to work a lot in R before. Um, R is more a statistical language than anything else, but it has developed into this data analysis language more generally. However, I found it has some limitations when it comes to memory allocation and working with large images and things like this. So the reason was then we were looking for something else where we could process large data sets more efficiently and Python came to mind. So there were multiple different strands coming together, if you like. On the one hand, employability of our graduates. On the other hand, the need for processing big data and Python seems to be the best solution available right now for the, for all these different purposes. Yeah, the uh, what there's a phrase that's eluding me. I'm sorry, I'm I'm a little underslept. Uh, but essentially, it's um, uh, the the gist of it is if something works and it continues working, um, and it's the easiest thing to get working, it's most likely to keep going on and living on versus something else that might be a little bit better or more efficient or have some kind of novelty to it. Um, you know, essentially if it's durable, it's going to last longer than if it's like very sleek, um, which I think is, is a, a pretty much Python in a nutshell. Um, it's not mm -hmm. the most elegant language. Um, it's not the, the, the fastest language, although you can do quite a bit with it to make it quite faster. Um, you know, some of the other like things you get with like C++, for example, where you're able to do like threading and things like that, as far as multiple parallel processing, Python makes it a little bit harder for you to do that. You can still do it though. Um, but really the, um, in my experience, the real power of Python is the fact that it is like a true Swiss army knife, right? Like not only just because of the fact that it is so stripped down um, in the sense of what it gives you, um, in, it's, it's more logical to the way that we talk and think as far as how programming goes. Uh, so like if you look at C++ or JavaScript would be another great example, um, which is, is a quite popular framework that you can use for, for similar processing um, of things like Python, but you can also do front-end languages with it to make like uh, graphic interfaces and things like that. If you look at Python code and you have no experience coding, you might be able to have some idea of what's going on, especially if you're a more algorithmic minded individual um, that you have a sense of that type of um, if then statements, if you, you know, logical computing, um, where if you look at JavaScript, it's just gonna look completely foreign to you. Uh, so the barrier to entry is a lot less. Um, and then from there, like, you know, like Raspberry Pi, that's a really great thing. So I'll, I'll introduce this. I'm an enormous Raspberry Pi nut. Um, I think I have like 15 or 20 Raspberry Pis. Uh, I have quite a few of them. Um, and what they really are, it's a microcomputer. Um, so for anyone who's, who doesn't know that, that may be listening, um, what that really means is it's, it's completely stripped down. It looks just like a motherboard. So it just looks like a piece of green 
uh, plastic with it's silicone, but plastic with, you know, a bunch of uh, circuits on it. And maybe you'll have some like, depending on, you know, if you have a, uh, the GPIO pins or not, it'll have like pins sticking out of it. Um, and really what it means is it runs a very thin operating system that then you can do whatever on top of. So most people put Linux on it um, and most people code with Python in it to do anything from, you know, controlling LED strips to what I have done, which is creating your own micro uh, server uh, in your house that, you know, can store pictures um, or, you know, anything from there. I've seen people even make a uh, battery powered, uh, I think it was a Volvo um, out of just powering it through Raspberry Pis, which so I got really excited when I saw that. I showed it to a friend and he's like, I'll never get in that car. Um, but, <laughs> but you can do a lot of really, really, really amazing and powerful things with it. Um, it's also UK born, um, which ironically enough, the way, are you, are you familiar with how Python got its name? Broadly, yeah. Yeah. So the guy was, the guy who, I can't remember his name, so apologies, um, who started Python and kind of created the language was a big Monty, Monty Python fan. Uh, so he named it uh, Python after Monty Python, um, which is why if you, if you ever do anyone who's listening like a tutorial of Python 101, the first thing you usually do is like spam plus spam equals spam uh, or things like that, <laughs> which are quite fun. Yes. Um, yeah, but, I grew up with Monty Python on the television. So, you know, uh, it's the... Is one of the best forms of British comedy, I think. There's a lot of great English humor in what they've done. Yeah, I, I like, uh, I, my parents were really into Monty Python, so I used to watch that a lot growing up. And uh, Faulty Towers as well. Oh, yes. Yeah, I like that one a lot. Um, that's excellent, though. So uh, image processing uh, is what you said you're, you're kind of using it for in the, in the modules. Um, so could you explain to me what image processing is um, and like an example of what you'd be doing um, and then also, uh, while along the way, uh, where you're getting the data from. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So image processing um, describes basically doing something to an image. Now, an image is just what we see on the screen currently. That's a sequence of images. So the video basically is just a sequence of many images very rapidly. And it looks like the image is moving, but it's not really. It's a series of different images shortly after each other. Like a flipbook. And a bit like that yeah and a television screen has three different color channels it has red green and blue channel um, but an image from a satellite can have more channels than that so it can have near infrared and it can have some non-visible channels if you like um, and mid-infrared and thermal infrared and other channels so that is worth knowing um, because images are not just the red, green, blue images that we are used to, but they can have some information that the human eye cannot normally see, but that the satellite can measure. And from those, we can, for example, infer the sea surface temperature and things like this, which the human eye cannot see. Um, but of course, you, you can sense the heat radiation from water, you know, if it's warm or if it's cold, um, but you cannot see it with your eyes. And that's partly because the human eye only has receptors for red, green, and blue light. That's why we design televisions with red, green, and blue channels. Right. <laughs> so there's a reason for that, basically to mimic our eyes. Um, <clears throat> so satellites take these images from space um, and they come with a number of different bands, spectral bands or channels, sometimes they are called. Um, and we visualize them on screen to see what is going on on the ground. Image processing, therefore, describes all the different modifications to those images from the time that the satellite records them 
to the time that you look at them in the form of a map. So we might be interested in, for example, highlighting particular features in an image. Let's say if we imagine we have an image of an area and there are certain types of land cover. You have an agricultural field, you have a city, you have a forest area and a lake. And we might be interested in highlighting what the lake is like, for example. So what we could do is we could make the lake brighter and we could make the rest of the image darker. That's image processing. Um, and that can be done in Python very effectively. So the first thing we need to do is basically decide what we want to do with the image. And that sometimes is the hardest step. And then we can implement the image processing chain that does all the individual steps of the processing to deliver the map in the form we wanted. Incidentally, that is also how your virtual background in, behind you is, uh, is done, you know, so there's some intelligent software behind it that basically sort of looks at you as a person and says, well, this, I think, is the boundary of the person and everything else behind it, I'm going to screen out with a virtual image. Yeah, and it's quite funny when it gets things wrong. Uh, so I, I, <laughs> I've been moving a lot, like uh, I'm, I'm right now in, a, in my mother-in-law's basement. Uh, but, uh, my wife will sometimes walk in the background. It's quite funny because it'll just pick up her face. So you'll just see a floating <laughs> head going back and forth behind me. Occasionally. Um, but that's, that's really great. I actually learned quite a bit right there myself. Uh, I, I didn't realize that, uh, I'm a stickler for definitions. Um, and, uh, I think it might come from my Socratic past I've come to realize. Um, but, uh, I didn't realize that the image processing includes the different spectral bands. That's really quite fascinating. So you're processing it not just for um, what's visible to the naked eye, but then processing it as well to then uh, highlight or, or pull out. Um, and then essentially, essentially you're using Python as the um, translation, er uh, translation mechanism to then say, okay, well, color the UV in a certain way that I can see it, color this spectral band or channel um, in a way that I can see it, um, which is quite interesting because I've done, uh, one of the projects that I have on the table um, is I want to create like a program that essentially like, I go hiking a lot, I'm, I'm very big into hiking. Um, I want to have it create a map of an area of my hike, uh, but give it in topographic, right? So that it, it gives the elevation and things like that. Um, because mm -hmm. it, it gives you a lot more color and then you tend to remember things a little bit better. It's, I'm using it as a trick to remember hikes a little bit better is what I want to use it for. Um, so you can use Python to then process it to say, okay, now, now highlight the elevation um, and either color the elevation different ways or shade them different ways. Um, but I, I hadn't realized or even thought of using it to say, well, can you color it for this type of spectral pattern so I can see like the, the temperature differences um, or whatnot. Like, in California, I would imagine where I used to hike out there a lot um, in the Cuyamaca State Park, which is, is a really gorgeous state park. Um, if anyone ever goes out there, I really highly suggest going out there. Just please, whatever you bring, take, take back out with you because it's a very sensitive habitat. Um, but the Kumeye Indians, uh, the native peoples that were there, used, that was like essentially their like summer villas was this uh, area that's now this Kumeye, uh, Cuyamaca State Park. So you see a lot of like geographic uh, remains from them like stone carvings and things like that it's quite fun to find um, but one of the cool things there is if you hit certain valleys it start you'll the temperature will drop like 15 degrees by pretty much just walking through almost like a, a curtain it feels like right um, so like that's something that I've I've done as like a you know a quick thing of like thermal like can you give me like the temperatures on there but it, that I didn't realize you could use to the level of these different spectral channels um, which is quite interesting
Um, yeah. You can do, for example, a combination of different spectral wavelengths. Huh. So for vegetation monitoring, that is quite often done to identify areas where the chlorophyll content in the vegetation is high, so where the plants are green. Um, the plants are green because of um, little chloroplasts in the leaves that are little sort of green encapsulated things where the photosynthesis happens and plants take up carbon from the atmosphere um, to store that in the in woody material and leaves. And the way this can be done is by using the red and the near-infrared bands and combining them to a vegetation index. So you take two spectral bands and combine them to one, one band, and that one composite band, if you like, is the index that indicates basically where the vegetation is greener. That is one way of doing it. And that is a common application in vegetation monitoring, because that allows you to see where the vegetation is vigorous and where the vegetation is suffering from drought, for example, where it is prone to fire, all these kinds of things. Wow, that's really interesting. So you're, you're taking two inputs and then you're creating one output from it. That's essentially, so you're like, you're, you're taking those and you're regressing them into one, one stream, which then you can say extrapolate on like a high, low ranking of wherever it is to say, this is high vegetation um, and it's, you know, very healthy or green um, or lower vegetation or starting to suffer from drought. And I'm assuming, cause I'm always going like 10 steps ahead as far as machine learning, uh, this is something that you can then have go over and over and over and over again and, under, and understand if this area is trending a certain way um, or, or not. And then having a, a computer script, which is something else you can do with Python. Um, computers never sleep so long as you don't pull the plug. Uh, so if you have this running all the time, um, you can actually have it bop up to you and say, hey, it looks like this area on the map over here is starting to, to trend into a drought. Um, why don't you come and take a better look? Is that fair? That's fair to say, yes. And actually, the United Nations and various other organizations are already using systems like that for drought monitoring and for early warning systems for famine. So huh. in East Africa, there is a system that works exactly like this. It's based on a continuous stream of images and based on the red and the near-infrared bands of the satellite image, uh, the vegetation greenness is worked out. And then the software then creates maps how green the vegetation is at this moment in time in comparison to an average over the last 10 years. And then if the vegetation is a lot less green than you would normally expect at this time of year, then it gives a warning and says, you know, watch out for this because it might indicate a crop failure. Huh. That's fascinating. Way, uh, way to go, United Nations. That's a, that's a smart novel application right there. Um, wow, that's really awesome. Um, there are even some automated systems where farmers can opt into uh, crop insurance in Kenya. Um, and those farmers that participate in that scheme can get automated payouts, depending on the satellite images, indicating that the crops are not doing so well. So huh. um, there is no need for sending out a field inspector because the travel can cost a lot. You know, the distances are far and the infrastructure is sometimes difficult. Um, but it means actually that the satellite looks at one particular field and says this year the vegetation is not so green, the farmer has not been lucky, you know, the crop is failing, and that then triggers a payout. It's all done electronically. That's awesome. That's really great. I, I, have, uh, I haven't been studying Africa in the past uh, five years as much as I did before, um, mostly just because uh, China is, is concerning me, but that's for another topic. Um, so I... I know in just to, just to kind of give a frame of reference for anyone that's listening, um, if you live in the States, uh, we really take for granted our interstate system. 
So like how much there is roads, like I just drove from California to, to, you know, just South of Lake Michigan and Indiana. Um, and I was able to do that without any problems. Um, you know, the weather was a little slick at times, but I got able to drive. So it was fine because it's on concrete roads. Um, but something that is a huge issue in Africa is roads and having access to roads. Um, and something else that I think, you know, at least speaking from an American perspective, um, that we take for granted is how much we don't feel the elevation when we go on those roads because they were so smartly built. Um, you know, like for example, uh, I think it's like the Eisenhower Tunnel in uh, between um, Grand Junction, Colorado, and Vail. Um, it's like one of the highest and longest tunnels in the world. Um, like you don't feel the elevation, you don't feel like you're going through a mountain, but you are. Uh, and even the steepest grades on any of these interstate roads isn't that steep because they've, you know, smartly mapped out where to go in the valleys and how to take out roads, you know, how to take out mountain and earth with dynamite uh, to do these things. And that is an incredibly hard thing that we had to do. Um, but we had the luck, if you will, that we don't have jungle in, in, in money, much of America, right? Um, and we do have mountains, but the ranges are actually quite thin in comparison to where they are other parts of the world, right? Uh, the Rockies is the thickest, I would say, like the, the most east-west as far as our mountain ranges. But if you get into sub-Saharan Africa or East Africa, we're talking um, quite, quite distinct foothills and mountains that make, that make getting around quite, quite difficult. Um, and most of the roads are dirt. And if, if they are dirt, you can't you know, expect them to be maintenance and, and monsoons is a season. You have a monsoon season. So you have to worry about, you know, what's going to happen when it rains. And then, you know, roads are actually um, quite dangerous when it rains because that just means it's an easy avenue for water to flow. So what I'm trying to say is that in Africa, you have so much more to contend with um, when it comes to all these different various means, um, being able to just go to the sky and come from above because of what I said before, you have the knowledge economy you have to worry about, but then also physically, how are you going to get people there? Um, and you can take a brush plane, maybe, um, but the weather in Africa is quite tenuous at times. Uh, so anyone who's a fan of Hemingway would know getting around in a plane hasn't really changed very much since when he went around. So uh, mm -hmm. that's really quite awesome that that's happening, especially with like the kind of skipping of uh, landline infrastructure that Africa is getting and they're going straight to mobile. Uh, so that's, that's very great. Once again, the, the decentralization, I think that that's amazing. Um, so to, uh, the data, the go back, going back to that, where are you getting these images from? Is it free? Are you, are you paying for it? Um, or because of some relationship you have, are you getting it? And, and how is that going? Yes, yeah, so we get most of our data now from the European Space Agency, from the Copernicus satellite missions. Um, there's a series of satellites called the Sentinel missions. And they are currently, there are six missions or so. Each mission has several satellites in orbit. Um, and they are acquiring regular images. So the commitment is there to continue those observations in the long term. So they are not one-off satellite missions and when the satellite dies, there is no more data. And that means actually as a user organization, I can have confidence that this data set is still going to be around in 10 years time. Um, that in the past has been a big barrier to the uptake of satellite data in organizations because you're not going to change how you monitor the performance of crops if you're not confident you can get the same data next year. Yeah. Um, and so that's why we're using Copernicus data a lot, um, because there is this long-term commitment to continue um, the, the satellite data supply. Um, but we are also working with commercial missions, commercial satellite data. So we have done some work on the planet constellation, 
Um, you may be familiar with that. That's a US company, I think, um, multinational company now. Um, and one of my PhD graduates actually works for that company now in the UK. Um, the planet constellation is based on the idea of making a satellite as small as possible and mounting a very cheap mobile phone camera on it uh, to keep the launch costs down. They actually pack them into a space shuttle that supplies the International Space Station. Um, and that supply shuttle, when it docks, basically opens the airlock and throws out the satellites into orbit. So you don't have to fire up a big rocket. Uh, specifically for the satellite launch. That is the biggest cost quite often for launching a new satellite mission. Yeah, certainly. The, the, the amount of money that you pay per pound to get to something into space is, is quite jarring. Um, I think SpaceX has gotten it down quite a bit, but it still might be in the, the 100,000 range uh, per pound or something like that, it, it, just to give a mm. ballpark. I don't know exactly, but it is, it is quite expensive. Um, so is, is this data, if I'm walking off the street, can I get access to these images? You can get access to a lot of imagery for free now. So yeah, the Copernicus satellite data are available to anyone. So you can access those from the European Space Agency directly. You need a bit of technical knowledge to do that, I think. But there are some um, interfaces where you can go to a web browser and you can just search for a range of images for an area and it just shows you a map. So you don't have to necessarily download everything and process it yourself. However, that's what we do, you know, and we teach our students how to do that. It's a bit more advanced, um, but that is probably also where a lot of innovation takes place. But yeah, anybody can get to those data. <clears throat> um, you can find the Copernicus mission online. Um, you know, if you search for the various satellite missions, I personally think the Sentinel-2 is a good way to start. And Sentinel-2, I'm saying that because it has a 10 meter pixel resolution. Mm. So you can see things that are at least 10 by 10 meters in size. Um, that's one square in the image, if you like. Um, and that means it's quite close to what we would see from an aerial photograph. Not quite, but, you know, almost. Um, it's these individual details um, of road infrastructures and things like this and houses. So it's better than Landsat, which is one of the satellite missions that has been around for a long time and has a 30 meter resolution um, and provides the longest consistent record of data. But the Sentinel-2 mission picks up smaller types of changes. Yeah, 10, 10 by 10 meters. That's, that, that's spy level almost. Yeah. Um, and generally, I think that is the boundary currently where 10 by 10 meters data you can get for free. Anything with a finer resolution than that is probably commercial data. Um, having said that, actually, with the planet data, for example, as a researcher, you can apply for free data. And with the research license, you get a limited access to a set of sample images that you can select. And you can start working with planet data. Um, many commercial providers actually have similar schemes in place. So it is always worth having a look. Um, and those tend to be higher resolution, um, but sometimes not quite as detailed in terms of the number of spectral bands, hmm. which I mentioned in the beginning. So the planet uh, tends to have fewer spectral bands than Sentinel-2. But that's simply because they went for the cheapest camera technology they could find. And Sentinel-2, because it's publicly financed, went for a very sophisticated imaging system that is actually able to see things like the status of vegetation health. <clears throat> and it has a, a lot of different spectral bands that are specifically made for parts of the spectrum that respond to vegetation condition. Wow. That's so really that's cool. perhaps also an interesting feature of that. 
And this in, in the science community, we call that the red edge position. And that is where the, in the wavelength spectrum, the red light changes over to the near infrared. And there's a steep increase in the reflectance because the red light is absorbed by the plants mm. and the near infrared light isn't. So it's being reflected away. And the position of that red edge where the reflectance goes up a lot indicates something about vegetation health, depending on whether it's quite close or not so close to the red. So is that how you do that with the spectral analysis on those two to, to regress it? Is you see how much of red is being absorbed by the plants versus how much is being reflected off of the infrared? Yes, we would do that this way. Um, I'm just going to have to plug in my power cable. I think I wasn't running out of juice in a moment. <laughs> no, no, no <laughs> worries. Technology. Uh, what can possibly go wrong? <laughs> yeah, everything. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Yes, so where was I? Oh, the reflecting of infrared versus absorbing of the red. With the red edge position, yeah. yes, thank you. So um, with the red edge position, that can actually allow you to see which plant species is there in which place. So you can make maps of the locations of different species um, oh. because they have different leaf biochemistry going on. The photosynthesis is, is functioning slightly differently and the leaf chemistry means that the reflectance is slightly different. And depending on the leaf chemistry, the position of the red edge can be shifted a little bit. Huh. That's fascinating. So, so you, you could actually figure out like if, okay, I'm just going to throw out some species here. If like a, a type of fern is growing more than maybe a native species of grass or something like that, you can be able to figure that out. Should be, yes. Some plant huh. species we can discriminate, but some others we can't. Um, so it depends partly what you're trying to map. Right. Um, I think it's probably not at the level of mapping every single species, but mapping groups of species that have a similar leaf chemistry. Right. That makes sense. So um, I just I just uh, recently saw this a few once again, time is eluding me. I think it was a few weeks ago, but who knows anymore, uh, where uh, the French president Macron uh, was talking about the desert desertification of the Sahara and the great green wall that they're trying to build. Um, so mm -hmm. this would be an example of where they'd be able to figure that out, not only just because the desert, desertification of saying like, oh, there's getting more sand here, um, but particularly that maybe species are getting uh, forced out because of other species, which then makes the uh, environment more turbulent and more likely to be, you know, become a desert. Yes, that's the kind of thing you could monitor with the space um, satellite technology that I mentioned, um, <clears throat> where you could produce time series from the various vegetation indices that I mentioned. So much like we are in a video, that is a series of different individual images, you can produce videos from different satellite images in the same sort of fashion. So one thing we do, um, and I, I teach this in my master's module, is actually we are monitoring an area by creating a map of how green the vegetation is at one time, making another map with the next image we can find. And then we stack the images into like a pancake stack of different images and then we play a movie through that stack and we see how the greenness is changing over time. That's really quite cool. Um, so I, I, I'm asking this as a bit of a selfish but it's actually a bigger part of the population. So I'm red and green colorblind. So would mm -hmm. you be able to even in this type of spectral or image analysis be able to flip the colors to maybe making vegetation green to making it yellow? That's very easy to do actually, huh. yes. And so um, it's actually a good point because for colorblind people, you have to think about how you can visualize the change you're interested in. 
And a common mistake that many people make and that I've made in the past is that people tend to visualize forests as green and change as red. But of course, yeah, as a yeah, yes. person, that basically doesn't show you anything. Um, so therefore, I think it's good practice, for example, to think about something bright like yellow uh, to indicate change. Um, and there are some guidance available what the best color schemes are for visualizing images. That's another advantage of image processing because you can make the map such that it highlights the features you want to show um, and taking into account um, the visual conditions like color blindness and possibly some other ones um, to make them as usable as possible. Totally. Yeah, that's great. It's also it's always surprises me how big of a the male population worldwide is actually colorblind or color deficient. I'm I'm very damn near colorblind, like red and green almost don't exist to me. Uh, but there's other people that I've met numerous people who you know maybe have just a little tint, hint hint of it. So uh, trying to always give more of a, a wider breadth to get people into it. Um, okay, so what Python modules do you use? Are they open source, um, and do you use a series of them to kind of chain them together? Yeah, so we use um, we use a number of different modules depending on the application that we use. So um, I'm using Raster.io, for example, for working with raster stacks. Um, that is quite good for just working with spatial data. Um, but I'm also a fan of GeoPandas. Um, GeoPandas is a development based on the Pandas library, but it's made so you can include geographic map projections which means you can, for example, reproject an image from the projection it comes in um, to another local or national map projection. So you can imagine if you take a map of the world, there are different ways how you can visualize how the Earth looks like. Um, because we are living on an ellipsoid, um, we cannot visualize that as a flat map very easily, but we have to do that somehow. That's what map projections basically do. They help you basically squeeze down that ellipsoid onto a flat surface. There are a number of different ways how that can be done. And GeoPandas, for example, allows you to do this in different ways. And it allows you to have information on which projection or which map type um, the image is in uh, to be added to the data. So it's great for those purposes. It also makes it very easy to work with line data or vector data in addition to the raster data or image data. So we can overlay, for example, where our areas of interest are, let's say the cities or the forests or the lakes we're working with. And we can also use it for extracting statistics very easily um, from the images. So we could look at actually not just how green the vegetation is visually on screen, but we could also extract numbers how green it is. So getting numbers out of data is always in, in research, of course, is incredibly important. And Python is great for this kind of thing. So yeah. Rasta.io, GeoPandas are, are really good ones. Rasta.io is based on the GDAL library. <clears throat> um, GDAL provides a wide range of different map projection um, information techniques. And it also allows you to reproject um, your maps directly and to change the pixel resolution of an image and these kind of things. Um, and I should say that I tend to work in GeoTIFF format. That's perhaps another thing worth saying. Um, GeoTIFF is a very widely used image format, and it makes it really easy to import the data into any analysis software that students might be using. Um, any GIS software can use that, and you can visualize it very easily on any computer. Um, so one of the things you should probably know is satellite data sometimes come in the weirdest data formats. 
because for each satellite mission, the space agency puts a team of experts together who scratch their heads and think about how do I compress this data most efficiently? And they come up with the most wonderful and weird systems of <laughs> compressing the data that make it really, really hard for someone who is not a trained computer scientist to access them. So geotiffs are great, partly because that's similar to what we know from photographs, you know, digital photographs, um, very easy to convert, anything can read it and easy to visualize. That's great. And, and a TIFF format, correct me if I'm wrong, that's essentially, it's similar to an uh, SVG in the sense that it's, it's taking an image and it's not compressing it into um, pixel, like a pixel render. Um, it's actually putting it into essentially a numerical form so that it's easier for a computer to process and then recompile or manipulate and kind of change the string in some manner to, that's why it's so easy to make something red to yellow or something like that. Am I, am I correct in that? Yeah, it has a compression technique, so it can actually reduce the size of the image, depending on how much information is in the image. If it's very complex, it cannot be compressed very much. But let's say if part of the image is just black and there's no information there, then that part is compressed. So the, the software is clever enough to say the left side of this image is completely without any data. So I don't need to spend lots of memory space storing all the zeros, you know, let's just say anything beyond that line is just not there. Um, and that's a great feature. It also means you can store different visual bands, you know, different spectral bands in the same file. Hmm. And I'm a great fan of actually having everything in one file if possible, because otherwise you end up with a complicated file management system. Um, <clears throat> but interestingly, GeoTIFFs are, are quite clever because they can store more than just the three red, green and blue channels. So you can have more than that in the same TIFF file. And that is also very good for image analysis on a scientific level. Yeah, or, or going back over something and, and looking for uh, more information because you can store it in that manner. And then, you know, five, 10 months or 10 years later, you can come back and say, uh, I want to see what the trend's like. And you, it's all stored there in one, one place, um, mm -hmm. which if anyone is going to take this, this episode and start uh, coding, um, be very cautious of your way you store your files and where you store everything and create very uh, smart nomenclature. Maybe I'll even make a blog post when I, when I post this of, of how I do it because it's been a lot of trial and error to make sure I don't lose wherever something is um, because that becomes, especially when you're programming and you're, you're building scripts to execute things programmatically, um, doing things smartly, such as like, you know, numerical formats or, or uh, dot formats and things like that, um, help your help create a, a, a way in which the system is able to go over the images um, or even find it a lot faster, which is great. Um, mm -hmm. Is is it Russell Russell IO? Is that what you were saying? Rasta IO. Rasta IO. Okay. R I S T E R I O. Okay. Rasta IO stands for input output. Um, so it's a simple package that allows you to read in raster data that are like an image format and you can work with the different layers very easily. So it just has all the basics. It's a bit like a toolbox that has all the basic processing steps. And then based on that, you know, you, you can then expand a little bit and use GeoPandas and things like this, which are more sophisticated. A good package is also Scikit-Learn, which is yeah. um, the machine learning package, which is part of the Scikit um, library. Um, Scikit-Learn actually um, is really good at classifying images with a random forest classifier, which is one of the machine learning methods. Um, it has a number of other machine learning algorithms. And you can tell the software basically what types of land cover you see in your image. 
And then based on those areas that you know are of a different land cover, it can then classify the whole map. That's really cool. So you could build your own map of where you live and have it classify different regions as coastal or forest or water um, or desert or anything like that. Yes, that kind too. of application. So this is one of the exercises I'll be doing with my students in a couple of weeks time. So if you're watching, watch this carefully. <laughs> um, the, um, it sounds more complex than it is, but a random forest classification basically just tries to find for each part of the image, what is the most likely land cover in that part of the image based on what I see in the different image bands or the different colors, if you like. That's great. That's really cool. Um, so you'd be able to, I mean, and then that goes for, is this spatial data from both the Sentinel and Sentinel-2 and from Copernicus, um, are these global or are they more of just like regionally focused, like you know, like we're saying Africa or, or maybe even like a, a longitude, or is it just trying to map the whole of the, the, the marble, if you will? Yeah, they are available for the global land surface. Huh. Um, the Sentinel-2 data are. Um, some of the Sentinel missions are available globally, so they're also ocean missions, and um, they take images very frequently as well. So, so with the Sentinel-2 data that give you a 10 by 10 meter spatial resolution with a lot of spatial detail, um, there's an image taken every five days over every location on the planet. Oh, wow. So you can see on a weekly basis how something is changing, provided there is no cloud in between. That's the caveat. So if you're living in a very cloud-covered area, yeah. you won't get many cloud-free images, unfortunately. Yeah. If, if you do live in a cloud-covered area, then I would say choose a SAR satellite. SAR, S-A-R, stands for Synthetic Aperture Radar. And um, this is basically a radar instrument in space that sends out microwave radiation that can go through the clouds and it gives you an image even under cloudy conditions. But it doesn't look like a photograph, you know, it's a microwave instrument. Yeah, so it looks, it looks a little uh, grainy. Is that a good way of putting it? Yeah, it does, yes. Yeah. Um, it looks a bit like salt and pepper, it has been described sometimes. Yeah. But you can do a lot with image processing to actually make it look nicer. Um, like you can do a temporal filtering where you just stack a lot of different radar images on top of each other to reduce the noise. So you make one image out of 10. And by doing that, by averaging, you are reducing that salt and pepper appearance and it looks almost like a photograph sometimes. Oh, and I would imagine that's just going to get better with time. Um, either mm -hmm. both the processing of it with ML uh, algos as well as the actual like raw taking of it um, as a type of technology is probably progress. That's really awesome. <laughs> Thank you for such an overview. Um, is there any, I wanna ask you a couple of fun questions while I, I have you for a few more Go minutes. Ahead, is, yeah. yeah, is there any other, anything else with, with this that you'd like to give as kind of a primer? Cause what, I, just to kind of get the audience, I'm gonna try to get this out there as a way of giving people an introduction into Python computing, uh, as well as doing this type of work. Cause I think it's a very fun way to get people into it. And especially, um, like in, in the type of work that I do in consulting, I can tell you right now, you can learn how to do this type of geographic mapping. And if you would like to do that, that's great. But as far as learning the basics of Python and computing, you can definitely take this to build a career in any number of image processing fields um, with Python, which is quite, quite great. So anything else before that, before I start asking you some fun questions? Yeah, I guess what I find Python is great at doing is automating the processing of satellite data. So mm. if you want to do something automatically, Python is the software of choice. Um, if you have a menu-driven software, you have to click your way through so many different levels and you have to do it again and again for every new image you get in. 
with Python, you do it once and then you just plug the next image in and click on run and everything is happening like you want it to. <clears throat> so it's great for that. Um, I'm personally a problem-based programmer, so um, <clears throat> I'm maybe not writing the most stylish software and I think computer scientists will probably tear their hair out when they look at my code, <laughs> but it, it sort of works and it does the job I want to. And for that reason, I, actually Python is great for going in little steps. <clears throat> so you break down a big problem into small problems, you solve one at a time and then you link them all together into a function and then you call that function and it does everything in one. So that's how I work, you know, working in little steps, solving a small problem, fitting it into the bigger processing chain to solve a bigger problem. And then once you've got that, then you can run everything again and again very efficiently. Yeah, that's great. That's great advice to give too. So don't break things down into small steps. Don't get frustrated. Don't don't try to be the best programmer right off the bat because um, even you're, you're being uh, self-deprecating, but it won you a Copernicus Award. So uh, it doesn't have to be the most beautiful. <laughs> Well, I mean, we shouldn't be ashamed to say that, uh, you know, we might not write the most elegant code, you know, but if it works, <laughs> I think um, it's fair to say also, you know, don't put yourself down if something doesn't work, you know, because programming comes with a lot of disappointment and a lot of frustration and a lot of shouting at the screen, um, I think is my experience. Um, so don't think you're a bad programmer if that happens, that's part of programming, um, but you will get better over time. So yeah, I think making small steps, you know, Starting with a hello world or something spam mm -hmm. equals spam, you know, it's not a bad way of starting. No, and and I think the, uh, I'm gonna just bracket off that for one second. Like the biggest advice I'd give anybody starting into programming is accept the fact that no matter what level of programmer you are, you're always gonna run into a part where you wanna bash your head up against the wall and you have no fucking idea where to go from here. Uh, but the best thing to do is just try to accept that and uh, move on to an adjacent thing that you're trying to do. Um, and then come back to it when, when the time comes. Um, don't just continue spinning on whatever that is, unless you're at some type of time crunch, because that'll happen where you have to just fix it. I've launched several things and been like, oh my God, how did that break? I have no idea. I have to stop right now and fix it. Um, but those type of something happened, you don't know what, what to do next. Just move on to something else and come back to it. Um, that's actually the natural course of any project is getting to a point where you have no idea what to do or even what broke, you know, um, so mm. that, that just happens. Um, so fun question. Uh, what is your favorite part of the earth to look at aesthetically or other? Aesthetically or other. Hmm. My favorite part of the world to look at, I think is probably the Caribbean. Hmm. Uh, the reason for that is that it's one of the most colorful parts of the world. When you look at satellite images, there are so many different landforms and forms of the islands, the different ocean colors, the different waveforms, the different clouds sometimes that you see. And I find looking at the Caribbean is never a disappointment. <laughs> I like that. Maybe that if anyone wants to take it on as a project of, of taking your uh, kind of run through of how to take satellite images, maybe starting there for, for aesthetic reasons, that would be quite pretty. Um, it's also, if anyone else wants to start, I, I've done this before actually, is I've taken satellite images and created a mosaic composite of a few of them. Um, and then you can make it as a, a, a quite nice uh, print in your house or something like that. Um, so the Caribbean, that's awesome. What about weather patterns? What, what area of the earth do you like watching as far as weather patterns? As far as weather patterns are concerned, I'm quite a fan of South Africa, uh, partly because I have been in bad weather in South Africa and it's absolutely amazing. 
Um, if you get into a thunderstorm in South Africa, it's nothing like the things we have here in the UK. You know, it's absolutely monstrous. Um, <clears throat> when I was there, actually, it almost flooded the entire Kruger National Park. Uh, when these rain systems come in, you know, it's it just like a black wall of clouds moving in and then it starts raining until the water rises by 10 meters or more, you know, and the rivers overflow and dams are being washed away, the roads are being washed away. So I watched those weather systems with great respect from my screen, <laughs> you know, having been in one. <laughs> That's great. How long will these storms last that are, are raising dams? They don't last very long. That's the thing. Huh. They are very short and sharp storms quite often. And so they sweep over the area and all the rain comes down in a very short space of time. That's that, why it, they're quite so destructive. I can imagine. Is that because of they're coming out of the mountains, so they're quite energetic and uh, uh, No, wet. they're coming from the Indian Ocean, actually. Oh, so, okay. Um, in, in the Indian Ocean, there's a lot of heat building up and a lot of water vapor going into the atmosphere from the Indian Ocean. And that can be transported over Mozambique into South Africa, um, where it then rains down. That's where it comes from. That's why these storms have a lot of energy and have a lot of water. And probably why they all break at once, because it's all just moving. I would imagine the jet streams are, are making it move quite fast. So once you just kind of pop the balloon, it just all comes out. I don't know quite why they move like that, but huh. I think it's part, it's pro probably partly influenced by the El Nino, although that is not mm. the traditional El Nino area. We think of the Pacific mainly, but the Indian monsoon, I think, is sort of connected a little bit with the El Nino system via telecoupling. There are probably other oscillations going on in the climate system that influence that. Um, yeah, but it, it's one of the most impressive um, things you can see. You know, if, if you're in South Africa and it doesn't rain for weeks and weeks and weeks, and then you get the weather front like this coming in, you think, where on earth am I? You know, what's <laughs> happening? <laughs> yeah, like otherworldly almost, right? A bit, yeah. I, I lived in Taiwan for a little while when I was, I was in school. Uh, and when the uh, typhoon season happened, like that was not anything like I've like I'm from the Midwest and we have tornadoes. I've experienced tornadoes several times and I've experienced like really crazy thunderstorms um, and lightning strikes that, you know, like I, one of the times a lightning hit uh, when I was living on a farm, hit a tree not that far and seeing it split and just oh, that was nuts. But I never experienced just a sheet of water where it literally looks like I would open my uh my back balcony up the, the 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 door and it would it would literally look like a sheet of water was there and you know like I, I have never until that point experienced what it's like to have your visibility cut so much like I, I probably couldn't see further than a few hundred meters in front of me because the water was just so dense that it just just disappeared the rest of the the rest of Taipei which was quite wild to experience um, so to see that but to see the water even being more than that um is got to be some some sites um yeah. i'm gonna i'm gonna take a look at that uh some spatial data from there and, and see what that those storm systems are like yeah have a look there are some maps out there on flooding in mozambique i think that you can look at i'm gonna do that um what about uh, your favorite mountainous region oh favorite mountain region well the mountain region i know best probably are the alps in europe um so that's one of my favorite areas. Um, it's great for hiking. Um, you know, it's great for day trips as well as longer trips if you wanted to. I've not done a longer trek, I have to say, um, but it's it's a fantastic area. It's absolutely wonderful. And, you know, it's very easy in terms of tourist infrastructure. 
So if you like um, touristy kind of holiday and you like your bed and breakfast, you like your restaurants nearby, that's a good area to go. That's great. That's great. Um, so you have a before life before you started looking at uh, satellites and, and mapping the earth from above. Um, and mm -hmm. now you have this second half of your life in which you are looking at satellites and all of that. Has your perspective on life and the earth changed at all since doing that? It probably has. That's a very good question, a very deep question, actually. Um, in my PhD a long time ago, I was actually studying agricultural and environmental sciences back in Gießen in Germany a um, long time ago. And as part of my research then, I was looking at uh, determining the different types of grass that grow in a meadow. So I had my plant book with all the Latin plant, Latin plant names, um, and I was sort of counting which plants I find in that meadow. Um, on a regular basis. <clears throat> so that was quite a tightly confined sort of project. Then I got into statistical modeling and, but it was all very local. Um, I think having studied global phenomena like climate change and looking at global maps and these kind of things has changed my outlook on the planet a little bit. Partly also because I think now the effects of climate change are so strong that more and more people feel them in their local environments. Whereas a long time ago, I think it was more like a theoretical debate for most people that nobody could really relate to. Um, I think the outlook on life has definitely changed from that, you know, and looking at satellite images can change your perspective. Um, some of the early astronauts were saying that, you know, that they sort of felt like their life is changing, having seen the Earth from the moon or something like this changes your life forever. Um, and I think it's about it's about perspective isn't it um, you, you realize actually that you are a small part in a big universe <laughs> somehow um, and actually one thing i really love about my job is that the earth is a beautiful planet you know when you look at it from above it's just amazing what you find so you know i could spend hours and hours just looking at google maps and scanning around the earth and finding interesting places and seeing what's there yeah i have a lot of fun doing that as well um i have also a, a um a quite kind of like how I said earlier, my I like studying economics because I feel like not only do I find interest in it, um, it also seems like a bit of a shortcut or a hack to learn more. Um, I recently have done the same with fractal geometry um, and understanding like the Mandelbrot sets is what kind of blew me into that. And now I've been looking at all different types of, of fractal geometry. Um, but I, I was in San Diego and I was um, there's this area called Sunset Cliffs. It's, it's quite gorgeous, um, these sandstone uh, erosions. Um, and I was looking at uh, all the different ways in which the water and, and uh, wind um, created these little fractal patterns on there. Um, and then I, my wife bought me as a, a gift, because uh, she knows how much I like satellite imagery, uh, this book called The Earth From Above, which is this BBC publication. Mm -hmm. um, and it was really quite amazing to see how when you look at a beach and you see uh, like in my, what I, what I was just saying, you see these, these erosion patterns that look like little lightning bolts almost. If, if you haven't seen it, like that's what a fractal pattern is. A lightning bolt is an example of it. Um, and then you start seeing the Colorado Rockies from above, um, or you start seeing like, you know, different foothills. You, you see the same patterns emerge. Um, and in much the same way that you realize, at least in my, my eyes, uh, the, the way that I realize that the earth is just a small part of this greater universe or this greater cosmos. Um, what you see in a beach is just a greater, smaller subset of what you can see in all of the earth. Um, and the beauty therein is, is quite astounding. And uh, yeah, I appreciate you, you answering my question, especially one that was quite deep and uh, a little targeted. 
<laughs> that's fine yeah no you're welcome well thank you for your time i'll, I'll pause it uh pause the recording in a second anything you want to add and then we can wrap no thanks for your time really enjoyed our talk me too thank you If you'd like to know about episode drops, check out our episode catalog, find ways to get us on different streaming platforms, or leave us a comment. Please reach out to us at bandwidthpodcast.com.